You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Okay, seventh commandment. Which is the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment is thou shalt not commit adultery. Very appropriate for our society. God is an absolutely pure and holy spirit and he abhors uncleanness. That's the foundation of this commandment. And it has to do with the preservation of chastity and purity because he is a pure spirit. Chastity refers to abstaining and refraining from unlawful sexual relations. And that's not just physical, it has to do, as we'll see, with internal as well. The sixth commandment deals with the sanctity of life. The seventh commandment deals with the sanctity of marriage. The eighth commandment, the sanctity of private property. The ninth commandment, the sanctity of truth. And the 10th commandment, the sanctity of our desires, which are to be Christ-centered. So here we have the sanctity of marriage. And only in this God-ordained context is conjugal love, and that's an old-fashioned word, conjugal, marital. Conjugal love is to be enjoyed, and human life is to be propagated. It's in the context of marriage. And thank God for marriage. All unlawful sexual relationships or relations and practices dishonor the name of God as well as the institution of marriage. So I think it's Hebrews 13, 13, uh, 5 maybe. Uh, Honor marriage. Honor the marriage bed. And that's the idea. So in the seventh commandment, what God has done is regulated the relationship between the two genders. There are only two. Uh, male and female, and he regulates these two genders and how they are to interact with one another. Of course, in our secular culture, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, people advocate the unrestrained indulgence of so-called natural appetites. The whole moral issue is removed. It's not even a moral issue. Regardless of God's moral law and the sanctity of marriage, modern man simply indulges his impure lusts. And he's encouraged to do so. Our culture glories in its shame. There's little opposition today in our society to fornication, adultery, unlawful divorce, and remarriage. Unlawful divorce. There is such a thing as lawful divorce. Of course, these sins are not new. You look at the patriarchs, I'm always struck. Here's Judah, the head of the clan, the Redeemer's clan, and he was about as bad as all of them. He had incest with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, uh, thinking that she was a prostitute, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. But today, what's, what's different is that this kind of immorality seems to be defended. It's not just promoted. It's not just tolerated. It's even defended as something that's good and lawful. Um, If God gave you these desires, why not satisfy them? And many today regard sexual relations not as a moral issue, but simply as a matter of appetite and preference. So the seventh commandment is very pertinent to our our, uh, modern culture. 
Any questions or comments on this first introductory page or slide? Okay. So the seventh commandment regulates our bodies, our minds, our affections, our relations. Nothing impure or immodest or unchaste should be allowed to defile them. These bodies, after all, belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He created them for himself. And then he went so, went so far as to redeem them by his own blood for himself. So glorify God in your body. Bodies are very important. When I was a new Christian, I used to think, well, the body is just a husk. What's important is the heart, right? That's our private devotions, the heart. Well, the heart is important, probably the most important. But the body is important. So much so that he is going to raise up the very same body at the final day. That's our hope. And if he's not going to do that, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry. And so this is impossible to do these things for the unregenerate whose hearts are not renewed. Now, you might find a person who is outwardly chaste for whatever reason, good breeding, training, whatever, but inwardly unchaste. There isn't one chaste unbeliever. Even believers struggle with chastity, but the unbeliever especially so. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. Bubbles up from inside. And God instituted marriage, thankfully, in part, to guard the fallen race against the sin of sexual immorality. And the, the original intent was simply to be a living, breathing analogy of the mystical union between Christ and his church. That's the ultimate purpose of marriage. But because of the fallen race and the unregenerate heart and the temptations in the world, he uses marriage to help guard against the sin of sexual immorality. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Now, of course, what he's talking about there is intimacy, the intimate relationship that is reserved for husband and wife. <clears throat> and God provides a spouse. <clears throat> Excuse me. He does so for companionship, for the propagation of the race, for a holy seed, and the prevention of immorality. Again. And to some, not to many, but to some, he gives the gift of celibacy so they can concentrate on matters pertaining to the kingdom. Paul was one. Jesus was another. And there are some in our day. It's a wonderful gift, and God does give it. But he doesn't give it liberally. I think it's sparingly. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. One of one, uh, one of one kind in one of another. So, uh, John Stott, uh, lifelong bachelor, he had the gift of celibacy. He focused his life and his labors on the kingdom without the concerns, legitimate lawful concerns, of a wife and family. Scripture celebrates the institution of marriage and the importance of the married state. It's a good thing which you know already. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman, a wife, who fears the Lord is to be praised, celebrates the relationship. At the beginning of this chapter, <clears throat> or near the beginning, it's talking about 
who is an excellent wife. So that's why the whole thing describes the spouse, the wife, the excellence of such a woman, and she is to be praised. It's the husband's privilege and duty to praise his godly wife. She's a good thing from the Lord. She's a favor from God. My wife has been uh, an excellent companion for about 33 years. She uh, helped me start a family, and um, she nurtured and raised and homeschooled seven children. She uh, is an excellent cook. Every meal, we've never missed a meal. And despite my children's protest, even the lentils were delicious. <laughs> Clothes washed, house clean, landscaping pristine. She helped start a church for 28 years. She's been integral. Uh, discipled girls, taught Sunday school, served in nursery, led the Christmas program. Helped start a school. Uh, <coughs> board member for seven or eight years, taught for 20, soon to retire, <clears throat> because she's a grandmother now of a beautiful young granddaughter. And to top it all off, at the age of 55, old granny there qualified for the High Rocks World Championships. I don't know if you know that. This is a grueling <clears throat> competition of strength and endurance. 90,000 people compete worldwide. 2,000 qualify for world championships, top 2%. Evie's grandmother <laughs> qualified, and I'm very proud of her. But the most important thing, the reason to praise her is because she fears the Lord. And every husband in here can say the same thing. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That's our duty. I mean, she's going to be praised by somebody, right? And who's the primary person to do that but her husband? So I've given you a dim example. I was happy to do it. Um, probably embarrassed my lovely wife. But that's what we as husbands do. And God has blessed the institution of marriage. It's a wonderful thing. And by fulfilling her God-given responsibilities, she strengthens her influence and she inspires true affection. What does it say? Her children rise up and praise her in the gates. So the dividends come. Any questions about anything that's been said here? John? Um, I'm going to, it's kind of tangentially related, um, say providing a spouse. I know some people kind of, uh, there was a thought, basically, uh, there's been an idea in the past 15, 20 years of, at least that long, of, hey, I'm just going to do the right thing and not try to get married, but just got to bring, that'll bring me to where so I don't search. Right. To quote a lyric of the song. My, uh, <laughs> my daughters got sick and tired of hearing me say, it's your duty to get married if you don't have the gift of celibacy. Right? Our culture doesn't think of it that way. Our culture thinks of it as, well, it's just kind of nice. What a wonderful thing. No, if God has not given you the gift of celibacy, it's your duty to get married. It's the married state. Even one of the sins against the seventh commandment is undue delay of marriage. Entangling vows of single life. 
those kinds of things. So I think you're hitting on something where it's not just that you sit back and say, okay, Lord, if you're going to plop somebody on my couch in the living room, I guess we'll get married. That doesn't mean you go out and just like go nuts and tell everybody, I think you're supposed to be my spouse. But you do. You position yourself in the church, for example. You get to know young people. You pray. And so I don't know if that's getting at your itch, but I think it's important for us to realize that. So if you have not the gift of celibacy, the cultural mandate is you be fruitful and multiply. That might mean adopting, which is a wonderful thing. It might mean helping children in the church. But this idea of producing a godly seed, we need to be involved. Yes, Alex. How one knows if they have the gift of celibacy? Is that just like, I don't want to get married, or I have no sexual desire? I think it's, that's an excellent question. It's a very difficult one to answer, because I don't have it. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know that the gift is given. I know uh, from little things that I've heard, uh, that doesn't mean there's no sexual desire, but I think it does mean that you can manage that successfully and not struggle as most men might, Um, that you have this overwhelming desire to serve the kingdom, It's it's your focus, your passion, even more so than most, and providence. I think it was, um, Oh, who was the famous lady missionary in India? And she wrote a book, and she was... Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael. Yeah, not, yeah, Amy Carmichael. Thank you. And I think... And she struggled with this. She legitimately had major struggles. But she recognized that God had placed her in a position, providentially, that this was her focus, and she loved ministry, and she ended up being a celibate. And God blessed her for it. So he gave her the gift. But again, that may not be a full answer because I don't, I've never had to discern that. So, Carolyn? Scott, I so appreciated the um, explanation and the definition. It's the broader definition that you should not have a prolonged engagement. And actually, it was the book, Becoming Elizabeth, that I was reading, and I was really... Uh, struggling with it, conflicted because she was in such agony. And their engagement or their time apart was five years. <laughs> and we've had some of things, you know, in our family. Right. And I think we're seeing that in the future today in these long extended engagement periods. Yeah, I don't think it's, it's not well, I think you're right. I think wisdom suggests that it's not best to have long engagements. I don't think it's sinful long engagement. Sometimes it's necessary. But because of temptation and so forth, it's, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. The heart aches, for example. But um, I, do think, <clears throat> I do think that the, what the divines are getting at is if you have selfish reasons for holding off getting married, undue delay of marriage, this is your duty. Yeah. We don't think of it that way. Oh, what a wonderful thing. I'm going to have the wedding ceremony, and it's going to be, my spouse is going to meet all my needs, and it's just going to be great. Yes, that might happen. Not going to meet all your needs, that's for sure. But it's your duty 
to pursue this. And previous generations, men would get married so they could grow up. And today, oftentimes, men wait, they wait until they grow up to get married, and it never happens. They don't grow up. Brianna? You gotta grow up. You gotta grow up, or like the father, her father cannot. You know, we have this delayed right. adolescence that happens in right. college in some ways because parents are still supporting their children, yet they're adults. Um, and so then you want to enter into a very adult commitment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't. So I, I mean, that comes with longer engagement sometimes. Um, you know, there's a lot of but I, the concept is simple. Right, like in the sense of... I don't think it's necessarily marrying young. I, that's a helpful thing, because that's what happened before they got they grew up. But I think <clears throat> whatever context you're living in, if you have selfish reasons for not fulfilling your duty, well, then you're sinning. So I didn't get married until I was 30, right? So somebody could have said, man, you, you waited way too long. Um, but I think it was important in God's providence. I didn't become a Christian until 23, I didn't even understand duty until I was 28, you know. So we look at the context. If you have selfish reasons for not getting married, if you have selfish reasons for not having children or adopting children, you're sinning. You're supposed to be in the process, right? Rob? Uh, I was just going to attest that getting married helped me grow up. I'm still growing. Join the club. Yes, John. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I, I, I agree with Bob. Um, actually, I talked to my best friend at the time. I said, I want to get married so I can go. Yeah. And I was explicitly thinking that it would help me and have the structure for my, my, my growth as a person. And that's a mature decision. And so in the process of making that decision, you grew up a little bit. That's good. And also thinking that we prepare, how long we spend preparing people for work? We spend... I don't know, like to say 16 years of their life preparing people for work. How long have we spent preparing people for adulthood in marriage? Well, that's a very good point. And I think you're right that families and churches need to be teaching. However, when it comes to work and marriage, they're going to catch far more than they're going to be taught, right? So we need godly examples. Uh, Anastasia? Yeah, I mean, if they're sincere and they, they feel, they, they think that God has called them to truly help nurture and raise the children of the church, okay, they're, they're involved in the process. They are being fruitful. It's just like our folks who adopt or who foster or who become surrogate grandparents for children in the church. 
I'm all for it. I think they're in the process. It's those people who say, I want to golf, I want to bowl, I want to play bridge, I don't want to have children, you know, hanging on my hands. I think that's sinning. Yeah. Yes. where I, I try to remind them, you have self-control. Right. But, you know, and so I see people rush into unwise marriages right. quoting scripture. Yeah, that's that's helpful. I mean, Paul's very comfortable saying, hey, if you can't control yourself, get married, right? So I have no problem with that. God gave us this wonderful institution to help us. However, you're exactly right. If the only reason you're getting married is because you think she's beautiful, well, that's not the right reason, right? A woman who is godly is to be praised. Beauty's vain. It's going to fade, it always does. And if you're just doing it because of her dad's money or those other reasons. So you marry in the Lord if you're a Christian, and you have to consider all the angles, right, as you're saying. And you're exactly right. If you rush into marriage simply because you're attracted bodily, it's the wrong reason. I, I've seen that. High school friends of mine did that. And even as a non-believer, I kind of thought that was foolish, you know. I was very foolish myself. What is required? The seventh commandment requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. Now we're getting at the, the mind, the words, the actions. You keep our bodies, minds, affections in a pure and holy frame. Nothing impure, nothing immodest, nothing contrary to chastity should be allowed to defile us. Not an easy job. We're called to be perfect. We're never going to be perfect this side of heaven. But if we give up that goal, we're living in sin. That's our goal. If you're not striving for perfection, you're sinning. You're never going to reach it. We're going to sin every day. But that's the goal. And to this end, we have to watch our thoughts, actions, even our eyes to keep ourselves pure. I have made a covenant with my eyes, said Job. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Now, this is especially true of men, but it's true of women as well. Both genders have to be careful of the things we see. Now, with men, it's typically the body, and with women, it's typically the story or the dress or whatever it is, you know. But both of us have to watch. The life of a Christian has to be a life of regulation, discipline, self-denial uh, in terms of what he or she sees. Erica mentioned this, the self-control. That's a fruit of the Spirit. Job was a man who feared God. He was blameless and upright in his generation, and he was an example to be followed. Our, our forefathers called them wanton looks. Illicit glances. Uh, Mark Klein used to tell me his dad, when he was raising him, said to him, the first glance is not your fault. It's the second glance that you find the guilt. You know, right? You might see it, oh, and then it's looking again. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking in the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And you know the rest of the story. And it was a huge 
living curse upon his whole dynasty and the nation as a whole. One glance. So we are to resist all temptations and shun all occasions of uncleanness and avoid all enticements thereunto. Again, a tall order, especially in a culture that is saturated with sexual temptation and perversion. Yes, Mary Ellis. Most of our conversation seems to be centered on the man. I would just like to say that I have observed, even in our community of believers, women who need someone to sit them down and tell them about the modest dressing. We're all learning. We're all in different stages. Yes. Thank you for that. But Thank you. It's just something that needs to be done. We need to stress that men look, so therefore women have to be responsible about how they dress. Right. Well, I appreciate that, and I think it's true, and the same is true the opposite way. So as we're all helping each other, trying to keep all of these commandments, and this one in particular, but I think, again... Uh, we're all at different stages. We're all learning. And the best way to do it is to be an example. The best way. Now, there needs to be teaching from the lectern, preaching from the pulpit, instruction at home, and discipling in the church. But again, the best way is for me to try my best to dress modestly. I, tr I pass the checkpoint every Sunday morning, and she says it's okay, you know, so I guess it's okay. <laughs> Does this match? Okay, I'm all set. She's embarrassed when I walk out during the week because I have all these mismatched clothes on. I'm sorry, Rob. I know there is That is um, an implication that could be drawn, but the text says explicitly he looked. Yeah. So the text seems to put the guilt on David, and David is the one who followed up, up by bringing her in and being together. So again, I could see why some expositor would say that, but it's not in the text. We don't know what the customs were. Maybe that was the only place where she could bathe, or maybe, you know. So, Rob? I've heard it said, like, the verse before the second one, in the time that the kings went out to war, mm -hmm. he didn't go out to war, he stayed at home. Right. So he's kind of responsible that way, too. So idleness is the devil's workshop, right? Yeah. Uh, we have to exercise temperance, observe moderation, practice the art of self-denial. It requires the keeping of chaste company, the friends we keep. And this is something that we have to model for our young people. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. You remember that old illustration? I think I imagine youth groups do this. I was never in youth group, but one person stands on the chair and the other person's on the floor and you try to... He tries to pull up the person, and the other person tries to pull him down. Well, who's going to win? Pull him down, right? Bad company ruins good morals. <clears throat> Very difficult. <clears throat> Very difficult to maintain purity when the company you keep is perverted. 
like the missionary dating, it's crazy. It's suicide, spiritually speaking. If you receive my words, you'll be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. And again, this whole idea in Proverbs. And he's speaking to his son, and by implication his daughter, but he's speaking to his son and saying, if you hang out with these kinds of people, they're going to affect you. That doesn't mean we can't be friends with worldly people. We are to be friends with them. We just need to be careful. They don't become your bosom buddies. You're not in covenant with them. Anyone who would seek to preserve his or her chastity must be careful to keep good, godly company close to the vest. That's important. It doesn't mean we must avoid friendship with unbelievers or the profane people of this world. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you'd need to go out of the world. So we are to love our neighbor, do good to them. We're just not to bring them into this close embrace of friendship. Share your heart with them. John? The next follow-up verse is, I'm writing to you to say, don't associate with people that are sexually immoral and call themselves brother and sister. Right. How should we deal then with other people that call themselves Christians, but are living, are either speaking in certain ways or living in certain ways? There's two ways to interpret that. One way is the associating means eating the supper. When you maintain that close association with these brothers who are sexually immoral, you don't let them partake of the same supper with you. So the elders are to suspend them from the table or excommunicate them from the church. So that's one way to interpret that. Another way to interpret it is to say you can't even invite them over to your house for dinner. And some people that I respect have that interpretation, that you can't, if they're being hypocritical, openly hypocritical, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, but I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. I'm not having dinner with you, you know. You don't associate with that close kind of friendship with a hypocrite of that nature. Totally, openly, brazenly hypocritical. Yeah. We are to wear modest clothing, getting back to Mary Alice's point, so as not to entice others and tempt them to the sin of immorality, both men and women. I'm sorry, did I miss somebody? Okay. The command requires marriage by those without the gift of celibacy, the cultural mandate. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have, notice, not may have, should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. It mandates conjugal love. (laughs) I, I won't go there. It mandates cohabitation. Spouses belong to each other. Uh, There was a situation years and years ago where um, the couple had to separate for a reason, for a time. And then after time, the one particular spouse refused to move back. And so the elders had to take action because you are to live together. This is not going to be a permanent thing. 
He even talks about separating for a time for the reason of prayer. Um, so there is this idea that the commandment requires cohabitation. Now, if you're, I know, for, let me, at the risk of embarrassing, Ernie traveled around the world for many, many years. That's not what we're talking about here. He was gone for, you know, days at a time. That's not what we're talking about. If you're providentially having to be removed, it's different. This was a choice that somebody made. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. People pass over the live with all the time and talk about understanding. You live with your wife. You live with your husband, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, or I would say the more vulnerable vessel. Many women here are very strong, strong women. But God has made us differently, and women are vulnerable in areas where men are not, and men are vulnerable where women are not. Rob? John talked about us preparing for marriage. Well, learning marriage for the rest of your life. If you can fully understand your wife, you're a special human being. (laughs) They're delightful, delicate, beautiful creatures, the glory of man. Not totally understandable, but I think God makes it that way, right? So we're made differently, regardless of what the culture says. We are made very differently, and we learn to try to understand each other and to appreciate strengths and weaknesses, which I'm still learning, and my wife will tell you I'm kind of an oaf sometimes. Does that mean like the husband is more understandable than the wife to understand? Him? We're very simple beings, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> One track mind, that's it. We're just very simple, yeah. I don't mean to make light, but I think, you know. (laughs) Okay, so it enjoins upon us the special duties of love and fidelity. It's the union of affections. We are to be one heart in two bodies, one flesh. Where there, without love, there is no harmony, but constant discord and strife. Love is not an emotion. Love is a daily decision. So I'm not talking here about, you know, Hollywood's, oh, I don't feel that. No, you decide that you are going to seek the well-being of your spouse. And you learn, to Rob's point, we learn how to do that better over time. Thomas Watson says, like two poisons in one's stomach, one is ever sick of the other when there's no love. We are to live together faithfully, fulfilling the respective duties as revealed by God. Among the Romans, interestingly enough, the bride would give her husband fire and water, symbolizing refinement and cleansing. It's just an ancient tradition. And she pledged to live her life with her husband in chastity and sincerity, which these things represented, both of which served the good of marriage. So they weren't believing, but they had something right. It also requires us to be diligent and faithful in, our, in whatever callings we receive. You might think, what does that have to do with the seventh commandment? Well, the, Proverbs 31. This woman is described, and she is hardworking. She's faithful in a lawful calling. 
The heart of her husband trusts in her. He'll have no lack of gain. She looks well to the waves of her household, does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her once again, the duty. And I'll say it to husbands, we are to find opportunities to praise our wives. I have fallen down and failed miserably, but that's what we're supposed to do. It obliges us to shun all occasions of uncleanness, resist temptations, keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, men and women. If there are things that you find tempting, and all of us are tempted, let's just be honest, avoid them. Find some way to avoid them. John? Um, there's a, I have a number of people that I know that are, are in practice, especially young people that are single, are in practice even of... of living with someone of the other gender it sounds like they're not actually just like a living room plutonic yeah or um going on a trip uh there's a person i know that just last past weekend went on a trip to cancun with the, with another a woman went on math they're they're dating somebody else but they're they just went on a trip together because they could yeah um i find it highly irregular and it's not avoiding the appearance of evil maybe it's plutonic Granted, but what kind of example? I mean, rumors spread. People whisper. And I don't care what does or doesn't happen. The appearance is that you are violating. So I think the better part of wisdom in that situation is not to go one-on-one doing something or live together. What was that old show? Uh, Three's Company. Boy, this is great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. How then can I do this great wickedness, said Joseph, and sin against God? He would not listen to her, to lie beside her. He was a handsome man, well-built, nicely dressed. She was apparently a beautiful woman. Nobody was there. Nobody would ever find out. Perfect opportunity. And he's a perfect example for us, all of us, to avoid. We preserve the chastity because the body is the Spirit's temple. That's what Paul says. We are inhabited by the Holy Spirit, set apart for God's use. He dwells within us. We are a sacred habitation of the deity. And we're consecrated for him. How then could we sin against God and do this great evil? Our bodies were made for God and then purchased by the blood of his own incarnate son. They don't belong to you and I, regardless of what the culture says. They belong to him. We must not desecrate the temple by immorality. We guard our bodies against it. We use them in the service of God's kingdom. And the ordinary means that he gives us is marriage. Once again, the Bible is not shy. It's not prudish. Look at Song of Solomon. The number of children in this church, I don't think we have to preach through Song of Solomon. I think it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's a gift to be enjoyed by spouses. It requires voluntary and mutual consent on both parties. Christians are to marry only in the Lord. We must not marry within the degrees of consanguinity, which are laid out in the word of God. What's that mean? None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness, I am the Lord, which is a way of describing conjugal love. Father, You don't do it with your mother, stepmother, sister, stepdaughter, stepcousin, aunt, uncle, daughter-in-law, sister-in-law. Those are all the relations listed in Leviticus 18. So we don't marry within the degrees of consanguinity, you know. Um, Any questions on 
on that. Okay. Oh, Rob. Is that, this is like maybe off topic, but is there? And I think it's how you say it, they mention eunuchs. Does the biblical concept of a eunuch carry some kind of meaning that, like, today somebody say, oh, that would be like a homosexual person or whatever? No. No. No, it's not, no, it's not homosexual. No, you, no, not in a literal sense. I'm saying, is it, is it symbolizing some category of folks where in modern times we had different labels? As far as I know, we don't have literal eunuchs. Yeah, I think, well, <laughs> There are some who've done it. Origen did it to himself. Um, but I think the gift of celibacy, it can refer to that, that you become a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. Yeah. Referring to the idea that you are devoting yourself to the kingdom and uh, forfeiting the marital privileges. So I don't think eunuch has a, a totally negative connotation. Yeah, I think it can be used positively <laughs> that you're doing this for the sake of God. Yeah. Sins, what are they? Adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, unnatural lust. I remember talking to a man who thought that the seventh commandment referred only to the act of adultery. Only married people can commit it or break the commandment. It's far wider than that, you can see. It forbids unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, affections. Any unclean thing inside breaks the seventh commandment. So we're all guilty. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Outlaws wanton immoral glances, immodest clothing, filthy jokes. We're not to be telling filthy jokes. We're not to be telling jokes with double entendres. Forbidden are all those sins that are contrary to nature and inconsistent with reason itself. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. You know what it's talking about. Homosexuality is a sin. It's an abomination. Both ways. What's happening in our culture was prophesied, predicted by Paul in Romans chapter 1. God gave them up. They glory in their shame, and they don't even realize that that is a judgment. That's the sad part about it. They think they're free to do whatever they want. And all they're doing is heaping on wrath to themselves, unless God brings them to repentance, which I hope he does. Unlawful divorce and desertion, polygamy, involvement with brothels or prostitutes. There we go. Entangling vows of single life, undue delay of marriage, again, the cultural mandate. And we can't prohibit, un- we can't prohibit lawful marriages. Oh, I'm sorry, Ernie. I'm sorry, Mary Alice. Yes, of course. Okay, then does she have grounds to leave him? We'd have to talk about that. <clears throat> I don't know the answer to that question is why I'm hedging my bets there. Um, different sessions, different churches have interpreted that differently um, because you've committed adultery too. Is that grounds for him to divorce you? You can see the difficulty. So we have to understand the context, the circumstances. We're all guilty of adultery. If you want to go there, 
So I want to know as a session member, is there any kind of repentance? Is there a struggle? What, what is the context of this in, in which this is happening? And it's a very difficult question for me to answer absolutely. You can see, of course, my dilemma. I do know that something so heinous as actually having sexual relations with another person, not your spouse. Okay, there's no question there, right? So let me just put it there, and I don't want to get myself into trouble by trying to give an absolute answer to a circumstantial question. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to avoid difficulties, but it's just impossible for me to answer that question without details, okay? But, but it is adultery. Let's put it that way. It is adultery. Yeah. John? Uh, if a person finds themselves struggling with uh, pornography or something such as, such as that, what is the, what is the recommendation for, for, to help a person? Because it's multi-pronged. They want to not do it's, yeah, it's, it's a very big problem in our culture. It's multi-pronged, multifaceted. It is practicing self-denial. It is developing your love for Christ because you need a love greater than your lust to overcome it. It means starving the beast within. You've got to find ways to keep yourself from seeing, encountering, uh, being tempted by anything that our culture is dishing up. It, it's multifaceted. Very difficult, though, in our culture. I'm not trying to avoid these hard questions, but I want to just finish up. He contrasts the sins of the flesh with sanctification of the Spirit in 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians 6. There are dishonor to and a defilement of the physical bodies, as you know. It brings guilt upon both people, not just one. And it's always accompanied by various other sins, covetousness. You're guilty of covetousness if you commit adultery. It dulls your affections, it depraves your mind, it defiles your conscience, it provokes the Lord. You destroy yourself, as the wise man tells us. He had a thousand wives, he ought to know. Um, in the Old Testament, it warranted execution. David judged the adulterer worthy of death, and that turned out to be him. The thief satisfies his hunger, the adulterer simply gratifies his animal lust. So. Seventh commandment, sorry to rush through the last part of it. Good questions, not easy. But it's important for us to understand the breadth of it. Laura and Jim, quickly. Really, it impacts next generations as well. It does. It's not just the marriage. Oh, yeah, we see that today. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are a pure spirit. And you are a holy God. And we confess that we live in a generation that is wicked and immoral and perverse, and we find that even in our own hearts. Please continue to sanctify us and help us to strive to obey your will. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.com.